You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. You're listening to this podcast. You love podcasts. Hopefully, you also love the Second City and our work. You know who else will love podcasts from the Second City? Your colleagues and employees. I'm excited to share a new partnership that the Second City Works is entering into with Venly, an audio technology company that allows businesses to share audio and podcasts directly for employee engagement and learning and development. Our new series, First Takes, uses amazing corporate insights and teaching that we've developed through the years and communicates it in eight short podcast episodes. Share this content with your employees on channels like Slack, Microsoft Teams, SharePoint, FirstUp, and your LMS, all with enterprise-grade security, privacy, and analytics. Interested in sharing this content and learning more? Register at www.venly.co slash secondcity, and we'll get you set up. Once again, it's www.venly.co slash secondcity to get access to the First Takes content series. We're looking forward to learning with you and your colleagues. My guest today is Liz Fosslein. Uh, Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, The Economist, and on NPR. She co-authored the Wall Street Journal bestseller, No Hard Feelings, with Molly West Duffy, and they have teamed up again to write the new book, Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DSAMed. Fosslein, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here as well, um, especially because the first line in the introduction of your book reads, quote, this book almost didn't happen, end quote. <laughs> so tell us why almost didn't happen. Yes. So the book is all about big feelings, uncertainty, perfectionism, burnout. And my co-author and I pitched it before COVID. And we're told by the publisher, eh, this isn't, you know, do people really have these big feelings? Like, do they want to talk about it? Do they want to read a whole book about it? These aren't Uh really pleasant things. And then we came up with a bunch of different ideas. Nothing really seemed to stick. And then about a year into the pandemic, our publisher came back to us and was like, you know what? I think people might want to read this book now. (laughs) Uh Um, So I think it was just after yeah, everyone was sort of forced to confront these really difficult emotions that we've always had, but were highlighted and heightened during the pandemic that the book 
started to seem attractive to the publishing agency. Yeah, this is a topic that comes up a lot on the podcast because certainly what I discovered in my life and I think is widely true is that people don't share their pain and their trauma and like everyone has it. Everyone. Totally. Yeah, it's like you get to live long enough, you will experience really hard things and that's an inevitable fact of life. So your hard thing that you talk about is you were living in Chicago and you literally had a panic attack on the L platform. Fullerton stop. Where were you? (laughs) Merchandise Mart. Merchandise Mart. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Wow. That's not a good place to have a panic attack. Yeah, no, it was not good. Yeah. So I, the context there is I was having, I started having horrible, horrible headaches where I would throw up, I would lose vision. And that is, you never want to go to the emergency room with that because they they think it's like brain aneurysm, like all these horribly scary things, which luckily for me, it was none of that, but it was atypical migraines and there's not a clear solution. So I was put on Topamax, a kind of medication that's also used for people with bipolar disorder. And so Mm. while it helped with the migraines, I started having really volatile mood swings, which then started to result in these like debilitating panic attacks. Um, And yeah, it, in the book, I talk about deciding I just don't want to be on this medication anymore, but also thank you healthcare system. No one had told me that you can't just stop taking this kind of medication, cold turkey. So then I had like heart arrhythmia after that. And it was just this long series of medical issues. Um, But thankfully now this was maybe seven years ago are much better, but at the time was just really terrible to navigate. So you and your co-author Molly also, she had stuff in her life and I'm curious, did what's the chicken and egg story here? Did, did, was it those experiences that drove you to this topic or did this topic come up and then those things happened? It was those experiences that drove us towards this topic. So we actually published a book in 2019 called no hard feelings, which is Mm -hmm. the opposite title. Um, And that was very much about emotions in the workplace. And in that book, we talk a lot about um, how, yeah, both of us grew up in more emotionally repressed households and entered especially the workforce with this idea that you just never feel anything at work. Um, And then as we started to do workshops based on that book, what came up more and more and then really exploded when the pandemic hit was really hard feelings where people were Mm -hmm. saying, I've tried all these things at work, but I have this thing going on at home or, you know, like I actually just don't work in an inclusive environment where it's not as simple as having a conversation with my manager. I cannot do that. And so that's really what drove this book, which then allowed us to open up about these more difficult experiences that we had had in our lives previously. So you talk about the, um, it's your number one myth, which is that certainty is attainable. Um, It's not um, also we, you know, the science behind uh, ex experts and their ability to predict the future is really bad. I mean, really like worse than regular people. I think the last study I saw. Uh, So you have, the, the nice thing about this book is you, you talk about some techniques and ideas that you can use. And one of them I really liked was, quote, stop and sit with uncertainty, end quote. And can you break the, that down for us a little bit? Yes. So this this was very much born out of my personal experience, mm-hmm. which is it's so easy when you wake up and you feel this nebulous, anxious dread cloud within you 
to just jump into action and start doing and doing and doing. And psychologists call this anxious fixing. So you wake up, you're anxious. And at least this is what I would do, especially at the start of the pandemic. I would immediately get up, I would vacuum clean, I would go through my email, I would create projects for myself, I would load the dishwasher, I was just doing stuff all day to escape this scary emotion. And what that does is it just burns you out. Because at the end of the day, you're exhausted, and you never took the time to stop and sit with that emotion and ask, what is actually driving this? What do I need to feel better? So it's this vicious cycle of exhaustion, more anxiety, more exhaustion. And so by actually pushing against that and sitting down and saying, here's what I'm feeling, I'm going to acknowledge this feels really, really bad, and I'm anxious. And what might be the need? Do I just need to know that I'm taking precautions about my safety? Do I need to call someone I love to make sure they're okay? Um, And it's only once you start to pinpoint that need that you can map out the next steps that will actually help you feel better. Yeah. And and actually writing it down helps too, right? Sometimes just what you call noting. Um, And I know um, I've talked to a a podcast guest who his his psychologist therapist uh, had him write down um, his anxieties and then throw that paper away. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's great. Another one, something that I found useful is worry time, Uh where if it's something you're worried about that you can't do anything about, like the global pandemic is happening. <laughs> There's not yes. really something I can do as an individual to just say Friday nights between five and five thirty. That's my worry time, and before that, I'm just not going to think about it. That's my thirty minutes to fall apart. But now it's I'll just push it to the side and come back to it Friday at five. I think I'm going to push the idea of everyone putting thirty minute worry time on their calendar at work because <laughs> <laughs> it seems like oh no, that's a very good use of time. Yeah. Um, One of the things I love um, is when uh, authors uh, uh, like yourself present um, ideas that also work the other way. Uh, So you write, quote, never compare your inside to someone else's outside, which I love that. And then you also say that, quote, comparison is central to figuring out who we are. So let's let's talk a little bit about that, because I I think that the, the science I know on this is that, you know, we can never know another's mind. And it's very likely that their, whatever their action is, is probably informed by something that you don't have access to. Totally. Yeah. So I'll start with the second, which is you yeah. just inevitably are going to compare yourself to others because humans are a relational species. So how do I know that I'm good at something? It's because I look around and see that I'm slightly better at it than other people. Or how do I develop an insecurity it's because I look around and perceive that other people are doing something better than I am. So it is kind of foundational to how we form a sense of self is just to look around at the world and see how we fit into it. And that is, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad, but in the modern world, especially with social media, where everyone's putting their best foot and face, and it's not only their face, it's like their filtered face (laughs) forward. It's very easy to look at that And you're seeing their highlight reel. And so you're only seeing what they're presenting to you. And even off social media, like you said at the beginning of this, people love to talk about their accomplishments. And I think even when they talk about really hard things, it usually ends with like, but then I persevered through and now look at me succeeding in the world. So it was all a learning experience and bloop, bloop, bloop. It's been like wrapped up in this beautiful bow. And so you're only seeing what they present, but within you, You have access to all of your insecurities and all of your anxieties and catastrophizing thoughts. And so it's very easy to 
take kind of your worst moments and compare them to someone else's best. And researchers have also found when they ask people, do you think you're a good runner? The person that we think of is not like, you know, our neighbor, it's the best runner we know. So we also have this tendency to just always compare ourselves to the best person at that thing that we know, which again, in the modern world might be like Jeff Bezos, if you're talking about money, which is like, not a useful comparison. No, it's not. I had uh, lunch this week with an old friend I hadn't seen for a while, and he told me he was getting divorced, and then uh, then brought up this other couple uh, that we know that is likely going down that road. And I was like, that's amazing to me, because the, the social media curation is that happy marriage, happy family. I mean, like on a every other day post. And you have scary data uh, in the book. And one of them is, quote, Facebook data shows that people spend 225% more time on the platform after a breakup. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I don't, I'll speak for myself. I think we've all been there. One, you just have more time. And two, you're just depressed scrolling. Um, I call it scrolling and self-loathing. Um, but that also means that you're just in a bad headspace. And so that's when you're even more likely to see someone's like happy wedding photos and really start to fall into this pit of I'm the only person who's been through something like this and I'll never feel better. And I'm alone in this experience. So one of the areas you also talk about is anger, um, which I think most people come to and think, well, that's a bad thing and we should stay as far away from it as possible. But you sort of have a different take on it. Yeah. So many of us receive this message that anger is irrational and associated with violence and is very harmful. And yes, certainly if you take the wrong actions based on anger, that can be true. But if you sit with it and again, think about like, what is this anger trying to tell me? It can actually advocate or help us advocate for ourselves, perform better in competitive circumstances, and then also just stand up for things we care about or people we love. So movements are always, not always, but often born out of anger. And researchers actually find when anger is justified, it's a healthier response than fear. So if if there's a violation that occurs, and you kind of cower within yourself and suppress your emotions and back away, that's not as good for you long term as if you feel angry, and then figure out a way to kind of communicate your boundaries and set those. So I think it's again, and this is a theme throughout the book is really like, we say, you know, sit with your emotions, but then wait until you can talk about your emotion without getting emotional. So you don't when you're in in a moment of extreme anger, you're not able to think very strategically. So that's usually when you're going to like, say something you regret, words are like toothpaste. Once they're out, you can't stick them back in the tube. So it's really just like, what do you need? Give yourself time to cool off, and then figure out a way to address that need. We just had the social psychologist Todd Cashton on the show, and he's got a new book about insubordination. And we got talking about effective uh, social justice movements, like the fight for gay rights. And he, he know, and, and, and there's a lot of anger, right? Where people are on the streets, but he also noted that those effective ones also had a lot of play, you know, and you think of that gay rights movement, right? There's like, there's hat, like outfits and, and mm. solidarity and people coming together. You, you talk about the quote, uh, you say, quote, anger can be a powerful tool for change, which I totally think is true. But I, I wonder if it's also even more effective if it's met with some level of, of play that offers you know, a, a bit of, um, so it doesn't go the other where, where we were, where you're throwing rocks. 
totally. Yeah. So anger can also spark creativity if you channel it correctly. So really thinking it's anger is essentially frustration at the way things are. And so if you try to channel that strategically, it can help you come up with a new, more fun, playful way of fighting back. And one example we share in the book that I love is um, a Pixar executive who actually purposely would recruit animators he knew were frustrated with movies Mm. onto a new team. And he would say, what were you mad about? Like, let's fix it. What do you wish we had done instead? And then one of these frustrated teams actually dreamt up The Incredibles, which then became this like whole franchise. So another example of how channeled correctly or strategically, it can lead to these amazing things, movements, great movies, things like that. Uh, this podcast loves to talk about how Milton Friedman got it wrong. Um, and you write in the book, quote, at its core, burnout is a symptom of capitalism, which is a provocative statement. Talk to me about that. <laughs> yes, we. I mean, I heard this so much growing up of like, pursue your passion. If you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. And that's I like, I don't know, every job kind of sucks sometimes (laughs) it's kind of inevitable Mm -hmm. and you just can't you know if you compare it to running a marathon if you want to run a marathon you can't just run 26 miles a day or even just run and run and run and run and run you will injure yourself and if you just only run you will die (laughs) at the end of that and the same thing applies to work but we just don't we we rarely receive that message of like actually if you want to find out what you're passionate about you have to try a bunch of stuff and fail at a bunch of it because it's important to know what you're not good at. And if you want to be in a career and you want to be working and providing for yourself, that's like a 50 year endeavor, knock on wood, hopefully it could be longer. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen with social security, but um, you know, and it's, it's not like you just can't work yourself into the ground that is not sustainable. And so I think a lot of that is fed by, you know, we just, there's always things that we're made to want with advertisements, which are like material things. So it feels good to like work towards that. And we rarely, again, receive this message of like, you know what you should do this weekend? You should not work. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. actually stop hustling, stop grinding. That's what's going to be best for you long-term. When we were looking at the research coming out of the Mayo Clinic uh, that showed that Uh, a more effective way to treat burnout is at a group level than an individual level. Um, And our work is all ensemble based and how you bring teams together effectively to collaborate. And and so we actually built a whole burnout program. Um, And and you talk about this need of of seeking out connections as a way to treat your, your burnout. Yes. I love the ensemble piece. There's yeah. So burnout has been used to describe many emotions And there's actually three components to it. So one is being overextended, where you just have too much to do. Mm -hmm. And then one of them is feeling disengaged. So you actually don't, you aren't connected to the people around you anymore. And that's where it's really helpful to reach out. Um, One thing too, I want to mention here is when it comes to conversations around burnout, and then also uncertainty, this was very true in 2020, where I think this word resilience became like a solve cure all word. And it's over and over. It was like, Oh, you're burnt out. Just be resilient. Oh, you're like a single mom. And now your kids are at home and you're working full time on your computer. Just be resilient. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like you're afraid of COVID and you're terrified for your family. There's structural inequalities, just be resilient. And so I think that's 
also something that exists within our society is this like self-help veering towards all of the onus should be on the individual when in fact recovery and the ability to be resilient depends so much on your support network and the environment around you. And so it's like, are you creating collective practices that make it easier for you to thrive versus you isolated in your home, just say an affirmation and you'll be fine. Yeah. Which, which is that's toxic positivity. The, the, you know, the, the practice part I think is crucial in all of this because you know, both in our educational systems and in our work education, we're rarely uh, given the chance to practice the things we need to be good at our jobs, like like being a really good listener. Like, <laughs> and it's all improv stuff. It's like it, it's like this is why, why all these famous people come out of here is because they're uh, amazing listeners at, at, and and more. But it, it's the it's this practice element, especially when it comes to resilience. That if if you don't have some sort of regiment. Um, and I'm, I'm very lucky at the, at the beginning of COVID when everything shut down, I was, I had already established a daily workout routine. So and I had already, uh, I was already in therapy and I have, I don't have a mindfulness practice, but I've, you know, played around with the, the stuff like that. And all of that served me incredibly well during that, that chaotic time. Um, but it's, but we don't practice. I mean, we really don't. Yeah. 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 Fully agree. I, I've eaten the same breakfast every day for 10 years. <laughs> so okay. You, all right. I've got to hear what that is. It's, um, uh, it's Greek yogurt with uh-huh. peanut butter, a cup of coffee, and then a Luna bar, which is this granola bar. Yep. And I've talked, I've talked about this breakfast everywhere. And Luna mm-hmm. bar still like doesn't want to work with me. <laughs> Luna bar. Send, send the lady some bars. What are you doing? I sent, I sent them an email once and they were like, thanks for your support. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. My greatest thing is I, I got interviewed in the New York Times for a piece, and I, it was when my kids were little, and I was having a hard time getting them a Tinky Winky Teletubby, uh, and one, <laughs> uh, one arrived at Second City the next day. Wow. Oh, see? That is Nailed amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. Oh, I'm still purchasing all my bars <laughs> myself. Uh, all right. Well, maybe this will be the podcast that changes maybe. everything. Uh, all right. You also talk about perfectionism. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting, uh, and true when I thought about it, but I don't think I've thought about it before you say perfectionism often manifests as procrastination. Yes. Yeah. That made me, that made me have a bit more grace for the procrastinators who bug me. (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah. So perfectionism, it's really easy to think that people who are perfectionists are perfect and it's less about striving for something and it's more about avoiding failure and so when it comes to procrastination and the story i share in the book is i have this friend who will he loves photography and he will sit on a photo for two years this is not a joke i'm not Uh, exaggerating just editing and editing past the point where a normal human eye understands like what has changed about this photo. And it's because he just doesn't want to send the photo out with a blemish or he always thinks it could be better. And so that's where the procrastination comes in. It's I'm terrified to put this out in the world and have it be anything less than perfect, but perfect is there is no clear definition. It's different to different people. So that's again, where it comes down to like, you're actually not moving towards anything anymore. You're just delaying and kind of going in circles, trying to avoid the fear of failure. And you say early on, early on in the book, this idea of being like, 
at 80% is okay. Yes. So the, so often I get the question too, when do I know that I should just put something out there? Um, and especially in a work context, like when should I just show this to my boss? And it's always, I say, when it's ready for useful feedback. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, if you have a draft of something, you can't just show someone your very first notes. They'll have no idea what you're talking about. But you also don't want to share it when it's necessarily at 100% because maybe you invested too much. It's actually not what's going to resonate with people. I could see this being true for like a script for anything of just like if it's at 80%, they can get it. They can give you feedback. You're going to be more open to that feedback. And it's nice to understand like, oh, actually, I think it would land better if I made these changes. Yeah. I mean, the way Second City creates its shows is takes all of this into account. So, you know, we do a two acts of scripted content and a third act that is improvised. And when we go into process and we're creating a new show, we use the late night improv, which is free, uh, to test out like new stuff. So mm. the fact that it fails over and over again, people don't care. It's they, they get what we're doing. And it's sometimes people's favorite bit because when something nails, they know they just made it up. And when it gets good enough, it goes into the regular show. And that just happens over like 12 weeks. So it's truly maps to sort of an innovation process where you can do rapid prototyping of material, but also know that the core thing you're delivering, this scripted content in the middle is really strong. Uh, yeah. And, and not everyone has the benefit of, of those kinds of laboratories, which kind of sucks because you don't get to innovation without creativity. And creativity is messy, is messy and yeah. filled with flaws. So it's like businesses and, and, and individuals have to figure out what are the spaces where I can allow to be messy. And it does help doing that with other people and having them sort of, you know, get, get that feedback or that reaction. Um, and, and then it can get to good enough where, where we're doing with like what you talk about. I love that too. Cause I, it also builds this muscle of, it's actually really useful for me to know what's bad or not bad, but yes. like, isn't landing in the isn't way landing. that I yeah. thought it was. I have this where sometimes I'll work on a paragraph where I do illustrations and I pour my heart and soul into it and think it's the most amazing thing. And then I show it to five people and they're like, I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Oh, well, okay. I was wrong here. Yeah. Uh, you also talk about despair and this stat really disturbed me that quote despair wasn't even clinically defined with a scaled set of criteria until 2020. Yeah. I know. Yeah. That that's true? A, I think we're just not good at openly talking about these big feelings. Um, we, you know, there's, it's not something that we learn. It's also not that intuitive. There's a lot of shame around it. So I think that that's born out of all of those forces. Hmm. You, uh, you share, uh, one of, uh, uh you, it's one of your sayings that you like, which is quote, a problem shared is a problem halved. Uh, I love that. Talk about it. Yes. Yeah, so when you are experiencing something, if you just sit with it on your own, it's very easy to get stuck in like sort of the pit of despair of your own mind, which in those darker times can be really dangerous. And then when you talk about it with someone else, and the caveat here is talking about it with someone that you trust and that you know will be supportive and will understand and be empathetic rather than who will judge you, who will use it against you. So it's very important to select the person with whom you share. But there's so much, um, I think, grace and hope in in just hearing that you're not alone, that someone else, maybe they haven't gone through the exact same thing 
but that they also have dark times or have gone through challenging moments and they seem okay now, or you, you know, mm-hmm. you don't see them as flawed as a person, which are often the thoughts that we have in our own heads. Um, so I think it just allows you to step outside yourself a little bit. And it's back to the connection piece that you mentioned of just like starting to really build that support system that will help you get through those really hard moments. So I really dislike the term, the great resignation, because I, I think we're having a meaning crisis in this country and probably in the world, but certainly in this country right now. And this idea around meaning making is the, I think the best antidote to despair. Yes. Yeah. I think the, again, the caveat there is it's always about, you know, first understanding like this is really hard to be in despair is extremely challenging. It takes a lot of strength to pull yourself out of that dark place. And so very much in the book, we try not to slip into this. Like, I think so often when someone's going through something hard, they'll hear like, everything happens for a reason. You'll look back on this time and be grateful. And it's like, no, actually, I wish I didn't have to go through that. But the truth is that it can reshape how you see the world, it can allow you to have sort of a deeper appreciation later on once you have gotten through it with support from other people um, for some of the things in life and help you just figure out what your priorities are. So in the book, we talk about post-traumatic growth, which is after you go through a period of trauma, you usually do emerge with a new sense of self and a new worldview that can actually help you craft this more meaningful life. And again, knowing that we probably all choose usually to not have had to go through that trauma in the first place, Mm -hmm. but it can be nice to hear that there is like a good that can come out of it. Yeah. I mean, that that's my lived experience. Um, And I think the other thing, and this is a constant therapy is with with a therapist is that there is no suffering without joy. There's no joy without suffering. And when you can understand that those walk together all the time, I mean, it's, it's like, it's the world we live in right now. I mean, this, this, you know, I'm, I'm trying to live my life with joy and, and, and gratitude and grace and all it. And I'm going to have a good dinner tonight. And I'm probably going to make a nice fancy cocktail. And there's a war going on. And yeah. various uh, um, uh, states are, you know, with horrific laws that are, are like hurting trans kids. It's, it's unbelievable what's going on. Right. And, and, and yet, you know, the, the sun will come up and, and I'm going to pet my dog. And that's a very, yeah. it's very hard to realize that. <laughs> you know, we're so linear as, as human beings. And, and we want, we are, we're, uh, we want these patterns to make sense and they just, they don't line up and they never are going to, that's, that's a hard way to live with the, with that reality. Totally. Yeah. My therapist, I'm also a therapy talks to me about parts and that you can have all like infinite parts. And one can be, as you mentioned, devastated about what's going on. And one can be grateful for the dinner you're making or the cocktail you're having. And yeah, I agree. I think it's really hard for us to understand that we can have this like whole whirlwind of feelings within us. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. But before we do that, we had Dan Pink on the podcast to talk about his great book on regret. I don't know if you've uh, looked at that or not. It's fantastic. Yes, love Dan Pink. Yeah, it's really good. Dan's the best. Um, And uh, so uh, he goes into it, but you do as well. Um, And I like, I like when you say this, you go, quote, when you're deep in the throes of imagining an alternative life, chances, chances are you're romanticizing it. Um, I had that experience. I was not happy at work and I was, I had this chance at, a, at, at another gig and we had this uh, business psychologist at the time who I sort of befriended and she was, she's like, Hey, it could be, but there's 
just every chance it could be way worse. And indeed, had I taken that opportunity, it would have been the worst choice of my life. Um, so <laughs> yeah. so I, I saw it play out and luckily I didn't. Uh, so talk a bit about what, what you, and this is sort of towards the end of your book uh, when you talk about regret. Yeah, so I, I share a, a more superficial example in the book, but to me that really encapsulates the same idea. I saw this chair, it was like a armchair on Craigslist and I went back and forth for a week. It was kind of expensive. Should I buy this chair? And then the list, when I finally made the decision, like, okay, I think I'm going to buy it. The, the listing was gone. And so this chair was disappeared from my life. And for a year, not no joke, a year, I would talk to, you know, my husband, like, oh, if only we had this chair, like my li- the living room looks so good. And I just always thought back to this chair. I didn't buy any other chair because nothing could ever live up to this chair that slipped mm-hmm. through my fingers. It was such a good deal. Like it really took on this like magical quality in my mind. And then the chair popped up on Craigslist again a year later. And when I saw it and I had the opportunity to buy it, I was like, you know what? I don't really like this chair that much. Oh, and no. so it, yeah, it was like, it was a very good one presented with that alternate reality. I think often it's like, do you actually want to trade your life for this other life? That's when you start to think of, oh, but then I wouldn't have met this person or I wouldn't have had this other, like you would have to give up so many things um, to go to that alternate universe. And so I think it's just a good reminder of, yeah, it's really, it's the same thing with comparison. It's a form of comparison where you're only looking at this like highlight reel of your alternate life. And you're not thinking that, again, what you just said, like any life, you are going to feel devastated at times, Mm -hmm. you're going to be really happy. Mm -hmm. But it's this whole mixed bag, no matter which path you're on. I think too, the the fundamental understanding that human beings tell stories of themselves and the people around them to make sense of the world. And they're often, very often not true, or shaded or, or biased or whatever. That I mean, you're young, much younger than I am. That, that I think that's going to be really useful information going forward in your life because it, mm-hmm. then, if you're not humbly curious as you walk into rooms, then then you, then you're not going to be seeing what's actually going on. Yeah, yeah, I love that advice. That's great. Um, all right, we always end the podcast with uh, asking our guests for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? Yes, which is actually writing this book. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, Molly, my co-author, originally came to me and was like, "We had written the first one, and it's it's an exhausting process. Um, it's it's just you know, especially in the world of social media, it's like years stretched out." And she was like, "I think that we have we've been talking about these things. I think this could be another." Book. And my knee jerk reaction was, "God, no! I just mm-hmm. like, can't take this on." Um, but instead, I was like, "You know what? I'm gonna let's see. Let's do an outline." Yes. And I said, I also want to make sure that, because we really did, we talk about this in the book, burn ourselves out with the first Mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was a yes. And I want reasonable deadlines. I just want to make sure that this is not something that, you know, causes us to fall face first into like a wall of pain again. And did you fall face first into a wall of pain? Uh, I mean, the pandemic happens. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It was, it was in the book, but yeah, it was, I wouldn't say it was like an easy ride, but no, the book process was much easier the second time. Life, awesome. life got hard. Life got hard. That always yeah. is. The book is called Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay. 
and it's co-written with Molly West Duffy. Liz Fosslane, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast, it's by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive.